0: history records some amazing misjudgments. A Munich schoolmaster to a ten-year-old Albert Einstein once said, you'll never amount to very much. Or famously in 1962, Dick Rowe of Decca Records turned down the opportunity to sign the Beatles, saying, we don't like their sound. Uh, Groups of guitars are on the way out. And of course, famously here in Edinburgh, J.K. Rowling's first Harry Potter manuscript was turned down by no less than 12 publishing houses before being accepted uh, by a small publishing house called Bloomsbury. And from being a penniless uh, uh, mum, she earned over £1 billion from her books, and the publishing house has done rather well too. Can you imagine being one of those publishers who turned her down? But any of these misjudgments really don't compare with the one that was made in Nazareth that day in the synagogue. Uh, Mark chapter 6 tells us what happened when Jesus returned to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. The great preacher had come back and on the Sabbath he attended the synagogue and began to teach. How would they respond to Jesus? I mean, the local lad had been stirring up the whole nation. They must have heard some of the reports of his ministry around Galilee. Thousands of people flocking to hear him and and the reports of amazing miracles. And here was the hometown boy about to preach back amongst those he grew up with. Their reaction, verse 2, is that they were astonished. But it was not the astonishment of wonder, but of disbelief. Look at verse 2. When Sabbath came, he began to teach. In the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things they asked? Notice they don't even refer to him by name. This man? What's the wisdom that's been given him? What are the remarkable miracles he is performing? I mean really? Where did he get all these big ideas about himself? He appeared so unremarkable growing up. Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? He's getting his ideas above, ideas above his station. He was a labourer. He was the village handyman. He once fixed my kitchen cabinets. Isn't this Mary's son? I think the contempt grows even more here. Sons were always identified by their fathers, not their mothers, even when their father was dead. And by this stage, probably uh, Joseph was dead. And What does that mean? Well, it means that there aren't many secrets kept in small towns. They knew Joseph was not involved with his pregnancy. They remember the morning sickness before Mary got officially married. Here was a dig both at the mother and a dig at him at being illegitimate. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus was the victim of a law of, uh, of human relationships that familiarity breeds contempt. How could they respond like this? Well the Christian faith affirms that Jesus was both truly God and truly man. For shorthand we talk about the virgin birth but of course the birth was not the miraculous bit. I think that was pretty ordinary. The miracle was in his conception. God's Holy Spirit the Bible says created a divine human embryo inside of Mary his mother's womb. But what's fascinating about the comments Uh, from this synagogue crowd where Jesus grew up is that in the early years of Jesus' life, he was clearly seen as an unremarkable human. He grew up as a very normal little boy, a teenager and a young adult, the oldest of five brothers and at least two sisters, who were the naturally conceived children of Mary and Joseph. There was clearly nothing remarkable about Jesus before he burst onto the public scene. And here is the scandal of the incarnation, uh, that God should condescend to become a carpenter the son of Mary and this scandalized the crowd in the synagogue that day even though they were amazed at his teaching they couldn't deny his miracles yet they tripped over their familiarity with his humanity and refused to accept him think back to the parable of the different soils their hearts were hard soil the seed of the word bounced off the congregation at nazareth that day and even today a similar dynamic Can take place. This is a peculiar uh, challenge, perhaps, for children growing up in a Christian church environment. It's easy to grow up with all the stories of Sunday school and be able to give the right answers. Generally, God, Jesus, or the Bible seems to answer most Sunday school questions, and yet fail to see the wonder and the glory of Jesus and His good news. Oh, well, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. It can tritely come off our tongues, but our familiarity can lead to dangerous contempt. And it's clear from this event that this is quite possible that to be religious and yet to reject God. If we were able to interview the, um, the crowd that left the synagogue that day and asked them, Are you anti-God? They would no doubt be absolutely horrified by even being asked the question. Of course not. Uh, they had just been to the synagogue. They were religious people. And yet that very day when the Son of God stood in their pulpit They did refuse to listen to him. Now, according to the polls, the majority of people in Scotland are not atheists. They they would admit that there must be something behind this remarkable world and this vast cosmos. Many people like to say that they are spiritual people today. They recognise that there's more to life than what we see with just our eyes. But they take offence at all this talk of incarnation, God taking on human flesh in Jesus. They're scandalised by the by the talk of Jesus having to die on a cross to redeem us so that our sins can be forgiven. It's offensive to say that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God because we just love the Hollywood fantasy that we can do anything we want and and achieve any dream we go for. People are scandalized to hear that the only way to be right with God is to humbly repent of our sins and by faith in Jesus alone, receive forgiveness and salvation as a gracious gift of God. Now, to some, all talk like that is offensive. And so people refuse to listen to Jesus. And what we need to see here in this part of Mark's biography of Jesus is that the consequences of doing this are so costly. Look at Jesus's response to their unbelief. There's two things to note. Firstly, he marveled at their lack of faith. A prophet is honoured everywhere except in his hometown and amongst his own relatives and in his own house. And Jesus is staggered at their response. They are astonishingly unbelieving. What a terrible thing to amaze God with your unbelief. But of course people still do it today. They witness the power of God changing people's lives, maybe their spouse or family member. But they simply write it off. They rationalise it and they close their eyes to the truth that would change them. When we see the light and reject it, we are embracing a costly darkness. Look at verse 5. He could not do any miracles there. They missed out big time in Nazareth, didn't they? I mean... Does this mean that Jesus is powerless to act unless people have faith? Is faith like a little fuel cell that needs to, 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 that you need to make healing work? No, that's clearly not the case as we've seen the miracles so far. I mean, did the disciples have faith when Jesus still the storm? No. Did the demon-possessed man have faith before Jesus cast out the evil spirit? No, no, not at all. You know, Jesus is the mighty one with all authority and he can do whatever he chooses whether there's faith there or not but the sobering truth here is that the rejection of jesus christ has consequences he is morally compelled not to show his power no great miracles take place in his hometown it's an act of judgment against them oh except a few sick people were healed as if that was just an ordinary ability well it was an ordinary ability for jesus second consequence. Of their rejection is that jesus moves on to teach elsewhere here is a terrible judgment on their unbelief he leaves them in their rejection and there's no record that he ever returned back to nazareth again see if we fail to respond to the revelation we have already received from god there might come a point where Even what we have is is taken away from us. We assume that we will always have the opportunity to respond to Jesus, but this is not so. What makes us think that after a lifetime of rejection, in the end, that we will repent? That's why I think these people at the synagogue in Nazareth made the greatest mistake of history. But the truth is that you and I could make the same mistake today by failing to listen to Jesus. And I would urge you, please do not do that. Now the disciples of Jesus witnessed all of this and in that context of this rejection Jesus sends out the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples, to urgently warn the whole of Israel. They are sent out on a short-term mission to spread the same message of Jesus and Jesus gives them his authority to cast out demons. Uh, This is a message that overturns Satan and his realm and he commissions them to proclaim a message of repentance. Look at verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. Now, how should we apply a section like this? Well, we need to be careful not to instantly apply all the points because it was a time-bound specific mission. This isn't sort of telling missionaries today that all they should do when they go to other countries is take a staff and some sandals. Um, but there are some things we can learn from this detail. Uh, firstly, he sends them out two by two, verse 7. I think that's practical. Uh, Two people provide companionship, additional counsel, enable us to play to our strengths and cover each other's weaknesses. And I'm so very glad to be part of a team of fellow elders that work with uh, fellow members and deacons as a church. And I have the privilege of working with a great staff team here at Shah Chapel. I am very thankful to God for that. But you know, it's not just practical, it's legal. In the Jewish context, a significant matter could only be established by the witness of two testimonies. And, and basically they're going out, partly, to testify to what they'd seen of Jesus. And two people were required to be good witnesses. And what do we make of their strange dress code in verses 8 and 9? I think the point is this, they're dressed for urgency and speed. Don't take a heavy suitcase that'll slow you down with additional outfits. Just go with what you have. Their instructions are traveling light because the disciples are on an urgent mission. There's not much time left Jesus, uh, for Jesus being present in Israel so they're not to get bogged down by having too many possessions on them. Interestingly, these are very similar instructions that were given to the Israelites about getting ready to leave Egypt at the exodus. And Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. The spiritual state of Israel is such that they are like the enslaved people in Egypt, and they need to be redeemed all over again, but from something far greater, their enslavement to sin. And their Redeemer had come in Jesus, and he announces that people need to urgently... Uh, get on the salvation train before it leaves the station. Um, they're also told how to act in verses 10 and 11. And notice here that Jesus is preparing them to face possible rejection. They're to stay when accepted and leave when rejected. Look at verse 11. And if in any place you uh, they will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, each society has its own gestures, you know, thumbs up. Everything's okay. Shaking hands used to be seen as a friendly sign of welcome, although with COVID it seems a bit threatening, doesn't it? And there's a whole host of other rude hand gestures that I'm not going to demonstrate because this is church. But let me tell you about shaking the dust off your feet. It was a very shocking gesture. Jewish people at that time, after traveling outside their nation on their return, would shake themselves free of the dust of the foreign gentile nations when returning home, lest they pollute the holy land of Israel. And so if you get rejected, Jesus says, let the Jewish village know that they're now no different to the gentile pagans. If you miss out on Jesus, that's where you are. And maybe that would wake some up to rethink their rejection. Rejection of gospel preachers is serious because it is a rejection of Jesus who sends them. And to reject Jesus is to reject any hope of forgiveness of our sins and entrance into God's kingdom. But the most remarkable thing about this passage is that Jesus sends these guys out at all. I mean, what exactly did they know at this stage? As we read on, it seems pretty, they seem pretty clueless at times. They can't have been Jesus' disciples for that long. And nevertheless, he sends them out. The significant thing here is that they go with His authority. They go to further Jesus' mission and ministry. And I actually think that's a great encouragement to us as Christians. What is Jesus looking for in His disciples? Is He looking for perfect people with a complete grasp of the Bible? Is He looking for superstar people with extraordinary gifts? Well, a brief consideration of who He actually sent, uh, as we know these disciples, let's, uh, lets us know that that's not the case. Jesus is looking for ordinary people who are simply willing to make themselves available to Him. I don't know whether you've ever gone on a summer Bible camp or been involved with a beach mission or been on a missions trip, short-term missions trip. It's a very clarifying experience because you go to a place specifically to talk to other people about Jesus and His gospel and suddenly you are a lot more prayerful. Suddenly you are looking for opportunities to share the good news about Jesus with others And yes of course you will experience some rejection but you also have the joy of seeing some responding and God answering prayers and I think one of the great dangers of of living life in uh, the comforts of of Edinburgh is that we lose some of this urgency the disciples urgency was that Jesus was soon uh, leaving via the cross and the resurrection the urgency for us is that Jesus is soon returning Uh, And and the urgency is that people around us don't have that much time. Our time on this planet is so limited. And when we die, that's it. Opportunity over. none None of us knows, really, when we might have our last conversation with someone. And so what are the disciples to say to people? Well, their message was clear. They were told to preach that people should repent. People must repent. Now, my Christian friends, when did we last make that clear to people? It's easy for us to talk about church, Christianity, but do we actually talk about Jesus? Do we talk about the challenge to respond that people must repent, to repent of ignoring God, to repent of refusing to listen to Jesus, to stop living as if they were the centre of the universe, to admit their sins before God and seek His grace and forgiveness? The truth is, is it's all too easy to get sucked in by the materialism and the concerns of everyday culture? We do not travel like today, do we? We get consumed by our work and our debt repayments and and the urgency of sharing the good news about Jesus. Well, it just kind of disappears in the distractions of life. And if that's true of us, we need to repent of our lack of love for people and for missing the opportunities in front of us. And there are great opportunities we can take each week to be to be Bible sharers, to invite people to take a look at Jesus and his word. I mean, why not ask God for an opportunity this week? But as we do so, we need also to be prepared for rejection. And we can see that in the way that Mark creates a sandwich. Uh, He puts uh, two stories intertwined. He sends out his disciples in verse 7 and in verse 30, we, we hear about how the apostles gathered around Jesus and report to him all that they'd done and taught. And sandwiched in between them going and coming back is the account of the martyrdom of John the Baptist, Now that's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? There comes a time when our habits and past choices come at a crisis moment with huge repercussions. That's what we see in the story of Herod, a man who was fatally unrepentant. If commissioning editors want a salacious family history to create a spicy TV show, well, then there's a rather rich, sordid scene in the antics of the family of Herod. Herod Antipas, that we read of in this section, was a son of Herod the Great uh, from his fourth wife. He had ten in all. And Herodias was also in the family tree, and she was actually a niece of Herod Antipas. And so when Herod Antipas ditched his own wife and seduced his brother's wife, well, that was not uncommon behaviour in the family. But it was clearly forbidden in the Old Testament law of Israel, and John the Baptist was uncompromisingly denouncing this marriage. Now, I find Herod a fascinating study of a man plagued with conscience. Look at verse 19. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod knew he was dealing with a man of God. In fact, everything that John the Baptist was, he was not. They're opposite. Kent Hughes puts the contrast like this in his commentary. John was austere and simple. Herod was flamboyant and ornate. John was righteous. Herod was a debauchee. John was a man of immense moral courage. Herod was a man of spineless relativity. Despite the uncomfortable and uncompromising message of John the Baptist, Herod was drawn to hear him back again and again in his prison cell. At one level, John's preaching affected him. His conscience was being awakened, but each time he went away and did nothing about it. Now, these verses also paint quite a portrait about Herodias, his wife. If Herod is short-sighted and impetuous, she is patient and a woman who knows how to nurse a grudge. Uh, Look at verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet. Ah, yes, this was her chance. She would not be shamed by this man in the prison. Herod threw a banquet for all the important people, a banquet with lots of booze and a crowd that would demand uh, ever-increasing adult entertainments. And what a loving mother Herodias was to send her teenage daughter into that room to dance. I don't think it was a tap dance. Uh, Verse 22. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The tipsy Herod then makes a ludicrous promise with a vow. I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Well, she runs out, gets the advice of her mother and quickly returns with her request, which reveals that she is just like her mother. Look at verse 25. At once the girl hurried into the king with her request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter, on a dish. Her mum had made no mention of a dish. That was her own little embellishment. Suddenly Herod was sober. Verse 26 says he was greatly distressed. I mean there's only other, one other place in Mark where that phrase is used and it's of Jesus on the night before his death. Herod's conscience was severely torn. I mean John was a good man and his wife had just deceived him. But then what would his friends and uh, fellow leaders think if he didn't follow up on his promise? And in big contrast to all the slowness of his response to John's preaching, he acts immediately to carry out this request. What a tragedy this whole incident is. You see, if the crowd in Nazareth is like hardened soil of the path, well then Herod is the soil where the seed gets choked by the weeds. Listen to what that parable says in verse 18 of chapter 4. Still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. You see, Herod is like many people even today. Their conscience begins to get stirred. They even hear the gospel with gladness at first, but as they delay and delay the step of repentance, well, the desire for other things comes along and chokes their spiritual responsiveness to the word. The choice before Herod was clear. Does he fear God or fear men? The tragedy is that he chose to fear men, to fear his wife. People rarely reject Christianity because of intellectual problems. They reject the claims of Jesus because of the moral implications on their lives. People reject gospel preachers because they simply do not want to repent. They don't want Jesus telling them how to live their life. They don't want God's word to change their lifestyle choices that they've made. They reject Jesus because they fear what friends or family or their spouse might think. The truth is some people spend their entire lives basing their decisions on what other people think. But you see, repentance does really matter. It is so dangerous to keep putting off what we know in all conscience we must do. Rejection of God's word has serious consequences. Look at Herod when he hears the reports about Jesus. He's racked with superstitious guilt. Jesus is, to his mind, John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. This is how it seems to Herod in in verse 16. When Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. You know, if Herod had listened to John, he would have known Uh, to come to Jesus for forgiveness of his sins but instead he rejects John and so rejects Jesus and he's riddled with guilt and fear. The tragedy of Herod is that he is fatally unrepentant and my friends listening today please don't make that mistake. You know I have known people like Herod with with power and wealth and a trophy wife and a nagging conscience I remember one very successful lawyer who would on occasions come to the church I pastored in America to to hear the preaching, and on a number of occasions seemed very deeply affected. One Sunday, I remember he was literally shaking under conviction of sin as he walked out of church. But as far as I know, he still remained unrepentant. I don't know what fear held him back. But what we should really fear is this, to face God on the day of judgment, unforgiven. Now, Herod lost his conscience and his soul. Don't let that be you. Turn to Jesus. Confess your sins. Repent and trust. But as I close, one final application to Christian disciples. If we go starting to call people to repent, how will that be received? Well, Mark has put three stories of preachers who faced rejection together. Jesus in the synagogue, the disciples shaking dust off their feet, And John the Baptist, who in the end lost his head. When we explain the good news about Jesus, some will receive it with great joy, while others will reject it. It is to be expected because of people's unwillingness to repent. Nobody, of course, likes rejection. But to be rejected because of identifying with Jesus will one day be shown to be only gain. What a glorious thing to be unashamed of Jesus. For that will mean he'll be unashamed of us when he comes again in his Father's glory.